0: for things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His direction on our study this morning. Father again we express our gratitude to you because you have given us your word you have to de- declare to us the end from the beginning you have informed us as to your plans your purposes in human history and in our lives and it is in your word that the eyes of our soul are enlightened and we come to understand truth as you have defined it reality as you have created it and it is only when we align our thinking to your thinking that we are able to live life as you have intended it to be lived. It's only then that we can relax. It's only then that we can uh, truly serve you in the way that you have intended. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be challenged by what we study, that our eyes may be opened to a greater understanding of the truth of your word, and that we may use this in our daily lives to our, own, to our spiritual benefit in your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible and Christianity have a number of words that are words that have somehow lost their meaning through their frequency of use. Some of these words have become somewhat archaic over time, and they're not words that find a whole lot of use in everyday language. Words like saint and holy Uh, Propitiation, justification, these are words that have significance within the Scripture, but they are not always understood by uh, Christians, not to mention those who are outside of the church. And it can become very confusing when, uh, as, as Christians, we talk about spiritual things and we're not sensitive to the fact that there are words that we use that really don't have any meaning to unbelievers. And if we're honest, for a lot of believers, they've, they've lost their meaning, although the words are so embedded in everyday spiritual language that uh, we don't really know what those words mean. Now, one of those words that we frequently get confused over and there's a lot of confusion about is the word repent. And you will hear people uh, saying things like uh, repent and be baptized, quoting from uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, Paul, uh, Peter's sermon there on the day of Pentecost, thinking that this is what uh, defines the gospel, is to repent and to be baptized. Uh, you may also see uh, people at times walking around with a sign that said, Repent for the end is near. Uh, what exactly does that mean to, uh, to repent uh, so this is one of those words that you often have trouble with, and then when people start defining it, then you get into even worse trouble. Or if you're in a, a cross cross-cultural or a trans, language translation situation where you have to take uh, the biblical term repent and translate it into another language, often the word the word groups that are chosen to translate repent don't do a very good job, and they use words associated with feeling sorry, feeling guilty. Uh, repentance is often associated with feelings of remorse and contrition. And that's true even in English. If you just look at some of the uh, dictionaries that we have uh, and their definitions of repent, you can see why there is such confusion. The Oxford English Dictionary defines repent as to feel or express sincere regret or remorse. Webster's 11th Collegiate Dictionary doesn't do much better. It has two groups of meanings listed. The first two meanings are to turn from sin, which uh, may be close in some contexts, uh, to turn, but the idea of turning from sin and dedicating oneself to the amendment of one's life is certainly not what the Bible means by the uh, use of the terms that are translated "repent." The second meaning given in Webster's is to feel regret or contrition, and then only when you get to the second meaning and the uh, the secondary meaning in the second idea there of to changing one one's mind, you get somewhat close to the biblical. Uh, the meaning of the biblical words, the Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, another set of meanings given in Webster was to cause to feel regret or contrition or to feel sorrow, regret, or contrition for something. This just, again, just leads to tremendous confusion. If you are uh, a Christian reading your Bible and you see this word repent and think, oh, I can go to the dictionary and find out what the meaning is, uh, you really can't. You will just be more uh, more confused. In the Collins English Dictionary, the same kind of confusion continues. Uh, the English word repent means to feel remorse or to be contrite about something, to show penitence, which is even a, a greater, uh, uh, greater confusion and greater distance from the biblical concept. Uh, then for defining the word repentance, the Collins Dictionary says that it is remorse or contrition for one's past actions or sins. An act or the process of being repentant or penitence. So, by looking at these English dictionaries, what I've uh, hoped to create in you is a sense of realization that this is a word that has that, that comes loaded with a certain amount of, of verbal et- and etymological baggage that it means it's just not understood by the average person who hears. Uh, who hears the word. In fact, it's not even understood by by many, many theologians. And so we see that uh, in, uh, the whole concept of repentance is one that we must investigate clearly in the word. And so to do that, I want you to turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30. There we go. Deuteronomy chapter 30 gives us a starting point for understanding where what this word actually means. And I want you to turn there because we'll look at a couple of verses here that are uh, not up on the screen. The primary verses that I will refer to are on the screen. And as most of you know, because it seems like lately I'm going to Deuteronomy 30 quite a bit through one study or another... This is within the final section of Moses, Moses' last message to the Israelites before he is uh, going to Mount up on Mount Nebo, Nebo when he will die. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a rehearsal of the basic provisions and mandates in the Mosaic Law. And Deuteronomy concludes, Moses concluded his message by reminding them that embedded within the law were promises of blessing and promises of judgment to the Israelites, depending on whether they were obedient or disobedient. If they were obedient, God would richly bless them. If they were disobedient to the law, that God would judge them. And at the end of Deuteronomy, there is the promise that though they will seriously defect from the Mosaic law, that they will apostatize and be uh, disciplined in a severe way by God so that they are removed from the land and scattered throughout uh, the world, that there would come a time when, as a group, the nation would turn back to God, at which time God would restore them to the land. And this promise is given in the first uh, six verses of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And Moses began by saying, "...now it shall come to pass... When all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have said before you. In other words, there will come a time when you have experienced some of these blessings and you will have experienced the curse or the judgments and you're scattered throughout all the nations. And he says, and you will call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. That while you are scattered throughout the earth and some of you are are in Europe, some are in Asia, some are in Africa, some are in North America, South America, that the Jews would be scattered throughout the whole whole earth, that at that time there would come a recognition among the surviving Jews at that time that God, of what God had said, and they would corporately turn to him. And this is indicated in the second verse and says, and you return... To the Lord your God and obey his voice. Now, I've underlined that because returning to the Lord your God is connected inseparably from obedience. It's not just a turning back to God, but turning back to God has a consequent uh, change in behavior. It is not, it, you just don't turn mentally, which is sometimes the idea that we get. When we study the uh, word repent in terms of the Greek meaning of uh, metanoeo to change your mind, it's not just a mental activity. It was a mental activity that led to a change in behavior. So verse uh, 2 indicates what this repentance is, and it's the Hebrew word shub. The Hebrew word shu, this is the primary word that was used in the Old Testament to indicate repentance. There's another word that's used, naham, but this is the root word. This is, when you think of repent, this is the word. It means to, the core meaning of the word is to turn or to return. And as such, it is an indication that a person is going in one direction with their thinking and their life, and they're going to now turn And go in another direction. And so when it is in this kind of a context where it's talking about some place that they have been, then it would be a return. And so uh, Moses says, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So the turning also produces a change in behavior, which is expressed as obeying his voice. According to all that I command you today, which was the the, uh, Mosaic law, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. It's not external. It is internal. There is a change of thinking, but it's a change of orientation of the soul that went uh, deeply into the soul. And in the context, it is one that is going to be related to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. The result is then given in verse 3 that the Lord your God will then bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now that is a prophecy that when this happens, and it has not yet happened in history, that God would then restore the Jews to the land from all the nations where they've been scattered while they've been under the uh, fifth cycle of discipline. Now, that verse sets the foundation of what repentance is. Everything else that we read in the rest of the Bible, whether we're talking about Joshua or Judges, we're talking later in the period of Samuel or the kings, or whether we're talking about the period in the return from the exile in the last part of the Old Testament, or whether we're talking about the gospel messages where of course John the Baptist is going to show up on the on the scene and what what is his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then Jesus showed up and Jesus said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand same message and he sent his disciples out with that same message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what i'm saying is that we can't understand anything about what the new testament says about repentance if we don't understand what the Old Testament context is, and the Old Testament context is set by Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. In fact, the uh, editors of the theological word book of the Old Testament uh, wrote this in relationship to explaining uh, explaining Shu. They stated... Um, the Bible is rich in idioms describing man's responsibility in the process of repentance. Such phrases would include the following. Incline your heart unto the Lord your God, in Joshua 24, 23. Circumcise yourself to the Lord, in Jeremiah 4, 4. Wash your heart from wickedness, in Jeremiah 4:14. 4, Break up your fallow ground in Hosea 10, 12, and so forth. All of these expressions were, were uh, expressions of man's penitential activity. Uh, or, or rather, all these expressions of man's penitential activity, however, are subsumed and summarized by this one verb, shuv. For better, for better than any other verb, it combines in itself the two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to the good. So that what they're saying is that in the, the, the Scripture doesn't always state it in a straight manner of return to the Lord, but there were various other uh, idioms and circumlocutions that were used to express the same idea of uh, turning to the Lord and away from idols. That is the uh, foundational meaning of the passage as seen in the context of Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 30. Uh, Shuv is used over a thousand times. In fact, it's the sixth most often used word in the Old Testament. And in 164 of its uses, it is in the context of a turning back to a renewal of the covenant relationship that God had established between himself and his people. And that is certainly the idea in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. Uh, that they were to return or turn back to the Lord to live once again within the the context of that covenant relationship. And if you're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 30, what you realize is in the next few verses that at the time that they turn and the time that they are restored to the land, God does something to them that's described in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And this particular verse is, and the ideas there of the circumcision of the heart and your heart of your descendants, is reminiscent of the language that's used to describe the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, 31 and following. And so it is in that context of the the Jews would turn to the Lord in obedience. God would then restore them to the land, at which time he would establish a new covenant that replaced the old covenant uh, with Moses, and that in that new covenant relationship, God would then uh, richly bless them. So this is what gives us that idea of what repentance is, especially in an Old Testament context. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does the do the writers of the Old Testament give us a developed doctrine of repentance. But what they do give us is various pictures of times in the history of Israel when they did repent, that is, they did turn back to restore that covenant relationship with God. And that is what is at the core of the events that we're studying in 2 Kings chapter 11. So let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 11. It's been several weeks since we have been in our study of 2 Kings, so you may have forgotten a little bit about just exactly what it is that we were studying and what the context is here in 2 Kings uh, Eleven. This is at the end of the, the period that is at the end of the uh, Amrid dynasty and God has been bringing the nation into, uh, into discipline because of the evil brought into the nation through the descendants of Amri, especially through Ahab and Jezebel. And so I've developed this chart for you that I'll put up on the screen again, showing the uh, dynasty of Omri in the north on the left side in yellow, and the dynasty of David, the Davidic dynasty in Judah, the kings of Judah on the right side. You had Asa and Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. But the evil that Jehoshaphat introduced into the southern kingdom was that he married off his son Jehoram to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel by the name of Athaliah. And so now the evil of Baal worship, the evil of the fertility worship that had, uh, that had gone on in the northern kingdom that had uh, brought the people into tre- tremendous temptation and wiped out their uh, spirituality was now in the south. And Athaliah has been brought within the very womb of the house of David. And I also see this as a satanic assault on the Davidic covenant because God had promised David that through his descendants there would be a king who would come, who would reign uh, forever and ever upon the throne of Israel. That, of course, is a reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ and yet through Athaliah and through Jehoram as well uh, there has been an assault on the descendants of David in that generation so that when Jehoram became king he killed off all of his brothers and when Athaliah uh, became queen when Jehoram uh when Jehoram died or rather when Ahaziah died because the line went from Jehoram to Ahaziah and then when Ahaziah died Athaliah became the the queen And she then killed all of the uh, royal heirs. And this is described in 2 Kings 11.1, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. So if she had been completely successful, she would have uh, virtually wiped out the Davidic line. But... God extended his grace and rescued one. Verse 2, But Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, in some passages he's referred to as Jehoash, Joash the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. And he was hidden with her, In the house of the Lord, because she was actually married to Jehoiada, the high priest. And so he was hidden and raised in the temple uh, for the next six years. And Athaliah reigned over the nation. Now, she had usurped the throne. Only a descendant of David had the right to rule over Judah. And not a woman from the house of Omri. Now, by this time... Uh, Omri's been dead for, of course, a number of years. Ahab is dead. Jezebel is dead. And under the uh, cleansing role of Jehu, who God had anointed to be the next king of of, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom had been cleansed of the house of Omri, and Athaliah is the only one uh, that is left alive. And she is seeking her vengeance and her attack on God and on his provision by wiping out all of the heirs heirs to David. And so the last time we were in this study, we came to verse 4, and I taught the doctrine of uh, uh, the right of the individual to defend themselves because what happens here is we see uh, Jehoiada, the high priest, organizing the defense of the king so that Athaliah cannot send her, uh, troops, her, her, um, uh, those who support her, to attack and to destroy and to kill uh, Joash. So this becomes a an important turning point in the history of of Israel. Now, what happens here is that. In the first, uh, in the next uh, six verses or so, from verse 4 down through verse 10, as we see the organization and the plan to protect the king is laid out by uh, Jehoiada. He brings in the captains of hundreds and the bodyguards and the escorts, brings them inside the house of the Lord, and he is going to enter into a pact with them and swear them to secrecy and uh, loyalty to the king for the first time he is going to reveal that the king's son Joash is still alive and that they are he is going to extract an oath of obedience from them uh, which probably would have been uh, had the penalty of death if they violated it and then he organizes them in verse 5 he says this is what you'll do a third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house there will be another third shall be at the horse gate. Uh, the King James just tra- kept, just transliterated that from Hebrew, the gate of Sur. And then one third would be at the gate behind the escort. So they are keeping watch over the temple, keeping watch over the, the king's house where uh, Athaliah was located, and they were to guard the king. And in verse 7 he says, The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king, but you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapon in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. And so there is a strict order given that if anybody breaches the security line, then they are to be immediately killed. They're not to be arrested. No questions are to be asked. It was an, an immediate act in order to protect the security of the king. Uh, there are times in history and there are times in certain events that are so crucial and so important that we have to realize that people, important people's lives are at stake and it is necessary to take the life of those who might bring a danger uh, in those situations. And that includes the execution of any, uh, any particular uh, enemy that may do extreme damage to a nation. Now, verse 9 tells us what they actually did. The captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada the priest, and the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. So this is showing, again, the connection with the house of David and how because of David and the way God had blessed David, uh, they're showing the continuity with Joash and that the that the uh, armament of David is being used to protect him. So the men stood all around the king, verse 11, and protected him. And then they have the ceremony beginning, uh, described there in verse 11, of crowning him as the new king. Verse 12 states, he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony and they made him king, anointed him, and clapped their hands and, and shouted, Long live the king. Now this is a tremendous ceremony. The people who have heard about this, they brought them into the temple uh, precinct. So there are uh, thousands of people there. They, it wasn't quiet. They're making a tremendous amount of noise. And they take him through a spe- very specific ceremony. First of all, they are going to put the crown upon his head to indicate that he is now the king and assuming the authority of the king. The second thing they did was to give him the testimony. Now, this takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the requirements for the king of Israel are laid out. And in Deuteronomy 17, there are various stipulations given uh, to the king and how the king should reign, things that were prohibited to the king, things that were uh, provided uh, for the king. And starting in verse 14, we read, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, possess it and dwell it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So first of all, the king... Is not someone that the people chose, but someone that the Lord chose. He would be one from among your brethren uh, that would be set as a king over them. That is, he would be uh, he would be a Jew who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Uh, verse sixteen. But and then some stipulations: the king should not multiply horses for himself. In other words, he's not to use his office as an opportunity to make himself rich at the expense of the people. Uh, Second, he's not to cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. In other words, to seek their wealth from other nations rather than looking to the Lord as the source of their sustenance and their wealth. And then verse 17, "...neither shall he multiply wives for himself," lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And, of course, we've seen how Solomon violated this and a number of the other kings uh, violated this. But then when we come to verse 18, we read, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the, uh, from the one before the priests, the Levites. In other words, he's given a copy of the testimony that has the approval of the priesthood as being an accurate copy of the law. And then he is to write out his own copy. He doesn't assign this to a scribe or a secretary. He does it uh, himself. And so that as he writes it out, he will be paying attention to the uh, specifics that are in the law. Then after he has completed writing out his own personal copy of the law, then he shall read it continuously, read it all the days of his life. He is to constantly be going back to the word of God as the uh, as the authority in his life that will inform him as to who the nation Israel is and what has, God has provided for them and what, how God is going to use the nation and what his responsibilities are as the leader of God's people. So he was was to read the law on a continuous basis, on a daily basis, for the purpose number 1 that he would learn to fear the Lord. This is authority orientation to realize who he was as the king that he wasn't the ultimate authority in Israel. The ultimate authority in Israel was the word of God. The ultimate authority of Israel was God who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, the God who had given the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. And he is to, first of all, learn the fear of the Lord, and then secondly, he is to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. He is to apply the law. As the king, he is the head of the of the nation, he's the head of the judiciary, so he is to see that all of the laws are implemented and applied in in the life of the nation. And then last, it's to teach him humility, to drive arrogance out of his soul. Verse 20 states, "...that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel." So there is a promise there that he is to, uh, our provision there, that he is to take the word, he is to make his own copy, continuously be in it uh, in order for the nation to prosper, the nation, uh, nation to be blessed. So this is why uh, uh, Joash is given a copy of the testimony. And then they anointed him. They would uh, pour oil on him as a sign that that God had designated him to be the king, and the idea of anointing is expressed through the uh, Hebrew verb uh, related to Mashiach, or Messiah, the anointed one. And so he is designated the king, then there is all of this uh, praise and ceremony, and the people shout, long live to the king, and now Athaliah uh, hears what is going on in verses 13 through 15. She finally gets... Which she deserves, when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord, where she when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom, and this would get seen in other passages such as second uh, 2 kings twenty three three which has to do with the um, the time when Josiah institutes another reform. We'll get there uh, eventually. But it it mirrors this same incident, and it goes back to uh, uh, Solomon's uh, uh, when he was anointed and when he established the temple in 2 Chronicles uh, 6.13. So the king would be set out there for all to see, and so she saw the king, and she saw the trumpeters, she saw all the people rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and what does she do? She screams out treason. Now she is the one who's committed treason. But she's going to accuse the one who is righteous of committing treason. And how often do we see this happen among uh, political leaders of all kinds down through history where they are the ones who are guilty of something and they constantly accuse those who oppose them of doing exactly what they do. And that is the same thing we see here. Uh, Athaliah accuses them of treason, but she's the one who violated the law by assuming the, uh, the, the rulership becoming queen over Judah, and Jehoiada and Joash have done everything according to the law. So as soon as she is noticed, because she starts screaming out treason, Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds to arrest her, to take her out of the temple grounds, and then to execute her uh, but she was not to be killed in the house of the Lord. Now what's interesting is Joash is going to have the first uh, 20 or 25 years of his reign is going to be very positive. But once Jehoiada dies, then he is going to be influenced by um, bad counselors, that he is going to turn away from the Lord, and he is going to become so rebellious that when uh, Jehoiada's son, uh, uh, Zechariah, A prophet challenges Joash because of his arrogance and his disobedience to the Lord. Joash is going to have Zechariah assassinated on the temple grounds, which shows how by the time we reach the end of his life, he has completely uh, reversed himself in obedience to the word of God and no longer cares or honors the word to the point that he's going to have a true prophet uh, executed on the temple grounds but that's the end of his life, and we're at the beginning here, and we see that that uh, Athaliah is not to be killed, not to be executed on the temple grounds or in the house of the Lord, so they took her to the entrance to the king's house, and there she was executed, verse 16. And then we come to verse 17, and verse 17 is when we see the true meaning of repentance take place. It is a turning. Now the word's not used here, but this depicts for us what turning or repenting actually means. In verse 17 we read, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. It is parallel to... What is, we'll see later in 2 Kings 23.3 with Josiah, where they go through the same kind of a covenant renewal ceremony. The same thing happens at the end of the exile period when Nehemiah uh, returns to complete the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, and he will do the same thing. There will again be a covenant renewal ceremony where the people are corporately uh, turning Back to God. But so that's the picture here. So what do we learn about this? We learn that it involves not just a mental shift, it involves action. And the point I'm making here is that the more that I study the word repent or this whole concept of turning back to the Lord, it involves more than just a mental act of, of turning, but that m- mental act of turning necessarily involves a consequent overt action that's consistent with that. And so the best word for it is just change. Not just changing your mind, but change. There is a shift in behavior as a result of that turning. And what? how does the behavior change here? Verse 18, And all the people of the land then went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. That's according to the law. What happens is because they turn back to God, now they are going to implement all the provisions of the Mosaic law. So they are going to tear down all of the idols and destroy the uh, false worship that has been established in the southern kingdom. So they went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces its altars and images and they killed or executed uh, Matan the priest of Baal before the altars. That's the altars in the Baal temple and the uh, priests then appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Now, all of this execution is, in, is completely consistent with what the Word of God teaches. In the first part of Deuteronomy 17, uh, there is a description of the fact that those who introduce idolatry into the land of Israel are to be executed and they are to be removed from the land uh, completely through death. And also in Exodus 21:12 we're told that anyone anybody who murdered someone uh they also would be were to be given the death penalty and of course Athaliah had murdered all of the uh, royal heirs so she was uh, doubly worthy of the death penalty and of course all of the priests of Baal all of those who worshiped uh, Baal they were also uh, worthy of the death penalty according to the Mosaic law, and so all of this is done uh, legally. It is not some sort of, uh, of vindictiveness uh, on the part of, uh, of Joash and Jehoiada. It is not, they're not executing some sort of coup. They are t- returning the nation to obedience uh, to the covenant that God had established uh, with them, and so there is a cleansing of the nation. And that's part of what occurs when we turn back to God. There is a cleansing of sin. This is pictured nationally here by removing the national sin which had been the worship of Baal. And the result, verse 20, is that all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he became the king. Now, When we understand what what turning to the Lord means as repentance, then other things become clear as we go through the Scripture. A minute ago I mentioned uh, Nehemiah. When Nehemiah is praying with regard to his return to Israel, he's still in uh, Persia at the time, but as he's praying about his return to the land and confessing the sins of the people corporately, He says in his prayer to God in Nehemiah 1, 8 and 9, he says, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Notice, in his prayer, he's quoting Scripture back to God. He's making a case to God as to why God should act in response to his prayer. And he is saying it is because, Lord, you have made this prediction and this promise in Deuteronomy 30, you promised that when you scattered us among the nations, that if we return to you, shoot, if we turn to you and kept your commandments and do them, though some may be cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he is quoting Deuteronomy 30 as a sign of, the, of national repentance or turning back to God. Now, when we then think about what happened subsequently in the history of Israel, uh, we then go to the last book of the Old Testament. And in the book of Malachi, there is again a call to the nation from a prophet to turn back to God in covenant obedience. But there they only had a superficial turning to God, as seen in Malachi uh, 1, 6-14, it wasn't a true turning back to God and Malachi predicts that eventually a time would come when preceded by the coming of the prophet Elijah when the people would indeed turn back to a covenant relationship with God and that's how the book closes in Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. Now that set the context for the New Testament and in the New Testament what ha- happens is at the opening John the Baptist comes onto the scene with his message Repent, which means what? Turn back, restore the covenant relationship with God. Turn back to God, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then do what? And then be baptized for the repentance of sin. Baptism, the physical act of water baptism was a associated with, with the spiritual act of washing, spiritual cleansing, that was associated with the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And so the message was to turn back to God and restore that covenant message, and the sign that they had turned internally to be restored to that covenant relationship with God was to be through water baptism, which pictured that internal cleansing of the heart. So that's John's message, then is the message of Jesus. Repent or turn back to restore that covenant relationship. But that message was rejected by the leaders of Israel because they thought through their legalistic obedience that they were actually in covenant relationship with God. And so they reject Jesus. They reject the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist ends up being executed by, uh, by Herod. Jesus is... Uh, eventually executed by the Romans as well as with the uh, uh, complicity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then when uh, Jesus rose from the dead, the the kingdom that they had proclaimed was uh, going to be postponed. But that's not clear immediately. In fact, in God's grace, because the nation was still in the land, there is still the continued gracious offer to Israel to turn back to God, that they still had the opportunity to turn and accept the Jesus as their Messiah. And that is the context of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of that message, Peter says something that is continuously misunderstood. And he says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that verse has to be understood in light of this whole history of repentance commands and the relationship of that promise in Deuteronomy 30 that when you turn back to God, God said, I will circumcise your hearts. That new covenant language that's tied to Jeremiah 31 is going to bring with it the forgiveness, the remission of sin. And so what Peter is, who's Peter talking to here? He's talking to Jews. He's just saying the same thing that John said, John the Baptist said, and that Jesus said, and he's saying the same thing to those Jews. He's saying, repent, turn back to a covenant relationship with God And as a sign, each of you be baptized. He's basically offering the same baptism command here that John the Baptist was offering as a sign that internally they were in right spiritual relationship with God and cleansed of their sin that would be evidenced by this external act of baptism. So Peter is still offering the kingdom to Israel. And in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, he says the same thing. He says, repent. Again, he uses the word uh, metanoia. Oh, I don't have the Acts 3 verse up here. But he says the same thing. Turn to God, and the times of refreshing will come. And the times of refreshing refer to the millennium. There's still a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel at that stage before they were uh, taken out under the fourth cycle of discipline. And my point is that when we understand the word repent, as turning back to God as it's used from Deuteronomy 30 all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It includes the the idea of turning or shifting your loyalty to God with the consequent action of obedience to Him. In other words, it means change. It's a primarily a mental attitude change, but then it results in consequent behavioral change. And then this is the idea that we see and in, in Revelation, in those seven letters to the seven churches that we studied in the first part of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, each of those letters ends with a command to repent. Now, it's not a command to be remorseful. It's not a command to, for contrition. It is a command that is in the context of saying, you were doing this, this, and this in disobedience to God. You need to change or else something drastic will happen in terms of di- divine discipline. And so we read the word repent again and again in each of these commands in Revelation 2.5, Revelation 2.16, Revelation 2.21 and 22, Revelation 3.3 3, and Revelation 3.19. Two of those seven letters did not have a repentance command because those churches were Incomplete obedience and nothing negative was said. But of the five that were engaged in disobedient action, the command was to repent. Not just to have a mental attitude change or to change your mind, but a true change that would change their behavior. And so we we come to understand that repentance then isn't related to the command of justification because we can't do that. Repentance isn't part of the gospel message for salvation. That's why you don't find the word repent anywhere in the gospel of John. John says all that you need to do in order to have eternal life is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. He never uses the word repent. Repent is addressed to God's people who are living in disobedience, who need to be restored for the Jews, it was a restoration as a nation to a co- the right covenant relationship with God. And in the church age, it is addressed to individual believers who are living in carnality who need to confess their sins and turn back in obedience to God, uh, living the spiritual life. And so uh, 2 Kings chapter 11 gives us a tremendous illustration of what repentance or turning entails. It entails a renewal of that covenant relationship with God with action that is consistent with it. In their case, it was tearing down the uh, idols of Baal. And uh, church age context, turning to God would be a recognition that you're still a child of God. You haven't lost your salvation because of your sin. You confess your sin to him, and then you take the necessary steps to try to Uh, avoid falling back into those same traps of temptation that where you so easily uh, yield to sin. And that means you have to start learning some doctrine in order to uh, govern your life and your thinking to stay away from those traps Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be challenged by our study of, of repentance, that it basically means to turn Uh, from disobedience to obedience and the action that is consequent to that, which means applying your word in our life. Father, we recognize that repentance is not part of the gospel, that the gospel is simply to believe the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. There may be some here this morning who are unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, and this is your opportunity right now, if you've never trusted Christ to do so, to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, and that by trusting in him, you have eternal life that can never, ever be taken away from you, no matter what you do, because all sin was paid for at the cross. Father, we pray for each of us that we would be challenged by what your word says, that we may implement these, this understanding in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.